Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and we are temporarily pausing our usual show format so that we can nerd out big time on a simple component category that's crucial to your bike's overall performance as well as its basic functionality. And that subject is bearings. Why should you even care that much about bearings anyway? We often take them for granted. However, on any given good quality bike, there can be up to two dozen of them at various locations like bottom brackets, hubs, headsets, derailleur pulleys, and sometimes even places like shift levers and brake calipers. And while you might not notice when they're working well, you'll probably notice when they're not. But what makes for a good bearing or a bad one? And why are some so much more expensive than others? And what should you look for when replacing or servicing your bearings? We're going to talk about all of that and more, and to help us do that, I've brought on as a special guest today, Matt Harvey. You've probably heard of one of the companies he runs, as Enduro Bearings is one of the leading suppliers of bearings in the bicycle industry. However, the parent company he also runs, ABI Industries, also happens to be a leading bearing supplier to a variety of non-cycling industries, so to say that he knows a fair bit about bearings would be quite the understatement. That's enough with the intros though, let's dive on in. Matt, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. It's great to see you, James. It's been a while, so... Uh... It, it, it has been a while. Um, Matt, before we get into all this stuff, would you mind just giving uh, listeners a little bit of a background on sort of, you know, what your background is with bearings mm -hmm. specifically and sort of, you know, why I basically have you on as our expert today to talk about <laughs> all this stuff? It's a good question. Well, um, so I've been in the bicycle industry a long time. I started in bicycle shops. Um, but, uh, when I started this company, uh, with my partner is about 25 years ago. And at the time I was at, uh, Bianchi USA working as product manager and doing a lot of product design for, it was the beginning of suspension bikes really. And, uh, you know, at the time we used bushings, but people were looking at bearings and, uh, it happened to be that my, uh, my partner was working, um, in a, forklift repair shop and uh, he was making bearings for um, old forklifts on the lathe and uh, it kind of turned into a bigger and bigger thing a bigger business and uh, I started doing AutoCAD drawings for him for bearings and uh, I was people were starting to put bearings into bicycles and I picked his brain about it he knew a little more than I did and uh, we just ended up uh, um, going into business with each other. And uh, uh, I left Bianchi and, and uh, got into bearings, put my head into it big time after that. And that was ABI, right? Yeah, ABI Industries is the company. And then Enduro Bearings is the brand we came up with. We knew we needed a brand because ABI Industries is the company which does forklift bearings and all sorts of things at the time. We didn't know where it was going exactly. But if we started making our own bearings and doing our own design for bearings, we needed a brand name. Uh, so Enduro Bearings, that was maybe 96, I think. And who knew that all this time later, Enduro would have this whole <sighs> new super cool meeting. I know. And then, and then that name kind of took on different. I mean, it was always Enduro Motorcycles. That's what we kind of, that's what I thought about with the name. But now it's Enduro, Enduro mountain bikes and enduro everything in cycling yep well cool i mean to i guess to to be perfectly clear um so this show is going to be all about bearings mm -hmm. but uh what we're mostly going to be talking about here today 
are cartridge bearings specifically, mm-hmm. like sort of like the 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 all self-contained unit that you can hold in your hand, where you know where, where the actual balls are totally captured inside of a like an inner and outer race, uh, as opposed to the the loose ball cup and cone systems that you kind of more commonly were found in the bikes of yesteryear. Right. Um, so as we get into this, Matt, I, I kind of want to start with a, a little bit of an overview on bearings. Okay. Um, so, you know, because this will come in handy as we kind of get more into the nuts and bolts of all this stuff. I mean, what are the different parts of a cartridge bearing that people should be able to, to know about? So there's, yeah, there's uh, five or six essential parts. Obviously, you've got the inner and outer race of any cartridge bearing. And those have grooves in them to carry the balls. Uh, you mentioned the old bearings, they were cup and cone. Those, those um, were retained by a preload system. So you have a cone and then the balls and then uh, a cup and they squeeze together and they have to be pushed together. Cartridge bearings that we're talking about are all self-contained. So you have an outer race with grooves, an inner race with grooves, you have the balls, and then you have a ball separator. And the way they're assembled, um, the reason they're not filled with balls is you put all the balls to one side uh, in the outer race and you slip the inner race in and then the balls are relocated and evenly spread around the ball bearing. Uh, And then the ball separator goes in to maintain that that separation. I actually have a sample here so we can just look for a reference, but here are all the balls. And then you have uh, this, you can see a, a stamped steel riveted retainer that keeps them all separated after they've been installed. And you can only get this many balls in because they're all going to be on this side. Let's, let's say this bottom part and this inner race when you're assembling it is all the way up at the top and you get as many balls in as you can it snaps together and then you distribute them around the the race and you uh put the retainer in right so it's a bit of a puzzle getting this thing together and then for i guess for most of the bearings that we are talking about in the bicycle industry then there are you know a couple of seals that get get popped into either side right exactly so then you have seals uh which going back in the old days you know phil wood started with probably the first one to put seals, cartridge bearings in, into things, into bicycles. And the seals, uh, they are, they're rubber instead of metal shields. So they are meant to keep the dirt out. Okay. So given all the different components that we're talking about here, how much variation are we looking at? I mean, just ignoring things like size, but um, I mean, it seems like there's an awful lot of uh, I guess, design freedom and engineering freedom as far as how these things can be made and designed and stuff, um, as far as, you know, materials tolerances and whatnot. So, I mean, how much of variation can there be? Quite a bit, actually. One of the key things um, is the material itself. So it's chromium steel, so-called bearing steel, or 52100. That's the common bearing steel that 90% of the bearings in the world are made out of. And... Um, there's a lot of different um, mills that, that make this steel and a lot of different levels of quality. So the first thing that's probably the most important thing is, is that steel and how clean it is. Basically, how uh, the, you know, that it's clean of impurities and that it's homogenous. So 
if you think of those things, you know, you have steel with carbon in it and uh, chromium and nickel, and it has to be um, evenly um, mixed, basically, if you will, and uh, also pure, of, uh, uh, clean of impurities, um, which can lead to, uh, well, other things we can talk about later, but it won't last as long. A clean steel with really good balls, good quality chromium steel balls, is the first thing you need. That's the most important thing. Okay. So it sounds like as far as steel, as far as the ball bearings go that are that are inside these these cartridge bearings, um, so it sounds like the materials for steel ball bearings is fairly common. I, I, I should say fairly consistent, I guess, depending on the different types of bearings. Mm -hmm. But what about the races? So, I mean, you have these two, these inner and outer races, mm -hmm. and, you know, by and large, they are steel. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are a whole bunch of different types of steel that they can be made of, right? Yeah, so... Well, not too many. There's there's either stainless steel, chromium steel. Uh, we also use XD15 steel, which is uh, kind of a super stainless steel. It's got a lot of nickel in it. And it's also a nitrogen steel. Get into that a little later. But yeah, there's some different alloys you can make bearings out of. Most bearings are made out of 52100 chromium steel. Um, Stainless steels, there's three types. There's 440A, 440B, and 440C. 440C is, is the best stainless steel. Of course, it's more expensive. That's how things go. And uh, then there's good 440C steel too. Like there's good, there's better 52100 steels out there, depending on where you get it from. The first steels were made, you know, the old Bessemer, uh, uh, steel making process. Now there's better vacuum uh, machine uh, mills that make cleaner steels. So how you get that iron out of the rock and mix it and, and, and finish it uh, is a big deal. Uh, and uh, we, we can, we could talk about that for hours, but, uh, <laughs> and then where you get the balls from, there's factories that just make balls, for instance, most bearing factories just make the races and then they buy the balls from big factories. So we get our balls from Japan almost exclusively. They make the best chromium steel balls. And I, this is something that I, I used to wonder for a long time. And then when I found out how they were actually made, I found it pretty fascinating. But as far as the balls themselves are concerned, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you want them to be round. Yeah. And you want them to be, you know, have a really good surface finish and they have to be hard and they have to be ductile and so on and so forth. I mean, a lot of that has to do with the material that's used, but how are they actually made so that you have this, you know, theoretically perfectly spherical thing? Yeah. Um, well, a lot of people think they're dropped from shot towers that, you know, that's kind of the, you know, melted steel comes out of a drip tube at the top of a 200 foot tower. And as it falls, it's cooling and becomes round and then it bounces on the floor, but that's not how they're made. They're, they're usually made from wire that is coming, is it coming out of a spool and uh, they're forged at the ends uh, at a rapid rate. They're cut, the wire is cut and forged by a, uh, a machine that's just chopping it at a, like a machine gun rate. And they're, they're, um, so they're hammered into a, roundish shape and then they fall into a series of sanding discs 
that uh, begin to shape them into uh, spheres. And as they become rounder, they drop through holes to the next set of spheres that continuously um, shape them until at the end they're being lapped and polished into uh, perfect little round balls. And it's amazing how round they can make these balls with uh, just, it's automatic equipment that's just running and running. And uh, again, you have to start out with really pure, good material, that's key. But um, at the end, you want um, balls that have a really mirror surface finish. Um, when, you, when you take balls out of your uh, bike, for instance, and you're, well, these are the old cup and cone times, but if they were brown or, or you couldn't get them um, shiny again, you throw them away and put new ones in. You always, but if they're shiny and mirror-like, they're still okay. But that's what they look like when they're finished. Well, no, and what you used to do is you used to re, you know, repack them with semi-chrome polish and then run them yeah. for a while and then clean everything out and then pack them with grease. That's what you used to yeah, do. Yeah, you can do that and uh, you know readjust it and because uh, it's cup and cone. So even if they get a little smaller, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You can right. adjust it up. Right. Uh, what about the seals that, that go on cartridge bearings? How much variation is there in those? So we, we use two types of material ourselves. Most people use just one, which is uh, Buna rubber seals. Um, for material, <clears throat> we use Buna rubber and at the high end, we use silicone. Uh, silicone um, is really nice because it uh, seals just as well as rubber, uh, but it has less friction. You can make the lip, you can also mold the lip more accurately and make a nice thin lip so there's less friction. In a lot of industries, that doesn't matter. But in the bicycle industry, you're always looking for watts and any kind of thing that's dragging you down. And in a rear hub, you've got five bearings, so you got ten seals that are, um, you know, they're slowing you down a little bit, but they're important because they protect the bearings. So you want them to drag as little as possible. So that gets into seal design. Two RS, which is you hear a lot of, like a a bearing number 6902 and then 2RS. 2RS literally means two rubber seals, but that doesn't tell you what type of seal. There's probably at least a dozen types. Um, there's a single, where you have just a single lip riding on a flat surface. There's a groove, I'll do this with my hands, <laughs> but here's the sealing lip and it rides in a groove or there's two sealing lips. Um, and then there's how, how much contact those seals are making in the groove. I'm talking, of course, about the dynamic lip. Because when you put a seal in, there's a static lip, uh, groove in the outer race, and you press it in. And, and that is uh, a tight, uh, static fit. It's not moving. And then on the inner race is where the seal makes contact, because the bearing's turning and... Uh, it's right here. So it's going to be making contact with this surface right here. And how you can put a groove into this uh, inner race and have the seal uh, sit in that groove, uh, or you can have it just rub on the outside. But it's pretty, in a lot, like I said, in a lot of industries, it's not critical. In the bicycle industry, it's, it becomes very critical because we're all looking for every little advantage and um, uh, you want to 
you want good seals that uh, keep the grease in and the dirt out, but you also don't want a lot of drag. gets to where I want to go to uh, go with all of this. So given that you have all of these multiple components that that go into a single cartridge bearing and given all the variation that you can have. And again, I'm, I'm talking for basically, you know, a cartridge bearing of a given size mm-hmm. and we'll get to size variation and stuff like that in a little bit. But given all those possible variations, you have, you know, materials and, you know, tolerances, we haven't even talked about that, but, you know, seal materials, seal types, uh, there's also different kind of greases mm-hmm. and oil and different sort of lubrications you can put in there, different amounts of lubrication that you can put in there. How do you balance all of this for, you know, or how do all of these different factors affect things like performance and durability in a cartridge bearing? Well, for instance, when people talk about drag in this bearing compared to that bearing, and I see tests done quite often, <clears throat> um, when you take a bearing out of a box, you've got a lot of grease in it, hopefully. They put enough grease in it. So, um, and then you got the seals. So most of the drag you feel is not from the balls rolling on the races. Almost any bearing of any quality, especially with no load on it, has extremely low drag. It's, it's, it's very hard to measure. What you do feel, however, is how thick that grease is and how much contact there is of the seal on the race. And until the grease mixes around and coats the seal, because that's another thing, when the seal is dry, it has much more drag than after it's turned for, say, like one ride, and the grease has a chance to mix around and get underneath the seal, changes it completely. So um, uh, grease and seals have an enormous uh, influence on the amount of drag in a bearing. And in a front hub, you have two bearings, four seals. In a bottom bracket, you have the same. In a rear hub, you have usually five bearings and 10 seals. So that's, and and you have a freewheel seal too, and maybe extra seals on the outside to keep dirt out. So that's a lot of rubber rubbing around in your hub, which isn't a bad thing. You wanna keep the dirt out because as you know, when everything gets filled with rocks and dirt and mud, uh, your wattage uh, gains go way down because that is going to have a much bigger influence. So you got to keep things clean. But it's again, it's a balancing act of of sealing versus um, uh, f- uh, rotational friction. So we haven't talked about tolerances yet, and there are obviously a lot of tolerances that we can talk about in such a tiny little package, and especially when we're talking about you know, fairly small differences in terms of, I mean, I guess from looking at it from a performance standpoint mm-hmm. in terms of drag, um, but you know, it, you're looking at how round the balls are and how well, uh, how, how precisely machined the inner and outer races are, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. How do tolerances affect how, how well a bearing performs? Um, they're very, very well, like all these things, it's another component that's extremely uh, valuable to the end result. And uh, so, when we talk about tolerances, uh, a lot of people will talk about ABEC ratings. Uh, what is ABEC ratings? ABEC 1, ABEC 3, 
five, it goes in odd numbers, uh, up to 13 or so. Uh, so th those were developed by NASA originally to keep track of the best bearings for the space program. So you're gonna, when you're talking about NASA, you're talking about extreme tolerances because they were the kings of that. So um, these days, uh, ABEC 3, 5, and 7 are pretty um, common. What are those? So mostly it's about 28 points, but it does have to do with the outer diameter tolerance. So let's say it's 28 millimeter. Um, what, how close to 28 millimeter is it? So there's a number for that. As you go to a higher ABEC rating, it, it will have a, a smaller number because um, it will be very close to 28 millimeters and the ID. And uh, you also have the ball roundness. You have uh, the raceway um, trueness. Um, so there, there's like 28 points. And then the ball diameter, you know, uh, balls are very good these days. Balls are usually no problem. It used to be the best balls were, um, you know, from Campagnolo, uh, grade 25 balls, 25 millionths out of round. That's a very round ball. Nowadays, it's not uncommon, grade five, grade 10, which means there are only five or 10 millionths out of round. That's so round. You cannot make a race as true as you can make that ball round. So let's talk about races. Um, there's a lot of different races because for high-speed applications, um, people will make the grooves quite shallow. So the, the groove where the ball rolls in is quite shallow for a high-speed, low heat, low noise. But in the bicycle business or bicycle application, we don't want to do that because you have a lot of different loads coming in on this bearing. If you have a very shallow race, that ball, um, let's say in a rear wheel, when you're going up a hill, the ball is getting pulled over to one side. You want a lot of support for that ball. So you want as deep grooves as possible. That contributes to some noise because you have more, the ball is now making more contact with the race, but um, so it, it it may be more difficult now to reach a high ABEC rating, but we don't really care because now it's supported and it can support axial loads, uh, sideways loads, thrust loads. Um, imagine a guy climbing up the hill in his bottom bracket bearings. They're going like this the whole time because of the reciprocating action of the pedal stroke. Um, you need to have axial uh, load uh, uh, components to your bearings. If you have very shallow bearings, they may have like a real high ABEC rating, high tolerance, low noise, but they're no good for pedaling up the hill. And okay. So would it be safe to say then, I mean, I feel like in the bike industry, people love to, to look at things on like a purely linear absolute scale. Like, you know, if this is good, then more of this must be better, that sort of thing. So as far as ABEC ratings go, I mean, would it be safe to say that while in a lot of ways those those numbers do correspond to kind of good, better, best, I mean, those are application specific sort of, aren't they? I mean, so yeah. would it be safe to say that, you know, just because something has a better ABEC rating wouldn't necessarily mean that it's a better choice for a certain application? It's very true. It's, it's like one measuring stick to know like, well, it's, okay, this bearing has ABEC 5 rating, so it has good tolerances. 
But what I'd also want to know is how is how deep is that groove design? How are the seals? There's some other things. It doesn't stop there. It's just like one one measuring stick. But yeah, if you have if you just go by ABEC rating, like these bearings aren't going to spin 10,000 RPM or 20,000 RPM. So we're not worried about noise or heat at at 10,000 RPM. What I would be more concerned with, I think, is how long that is it going to finish the race for me? Is it going to finish the ride? Is it going to will I have to replace these every 2 months or or can I just look at them again in a year? That I mean, so you, you want longevity. You don't, you know. Oh, hey, now. Hey, easy with the pragmatism here. We'll get to that. Okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry about that. What? What what about uh what about angular contact versus radial? Because I feel like at this point we've we've only really been talking about radial right. cartridge bearings, but there's also this other other type called angular contact, right. which, I mean, it basically is sort of like a self-contained way of you know sort of a self-contained version of the old cup and cone bearings that we all grew up with. It right? is, it is, and angular contact bearings were the first production cartridge bearings made, uh, uh, cup and cone style bearings. Uh, go way back and they um, it's literally a cup what's I got one handy over here so it's literally a cup and then you have the balls in a retainer and then this would be called the cone and you put it together like that and uh, and it rolls but you need to hold it together so you need what they call preload preload is the pressure to hold these bearings together and um, in a radial bearing, you press it in and you don't normally preload it. You press it into a hub and you have dead stops that uh, go up against the bearing. And <clears throat> there's some internal clearance or play, if you will, now always in a radial bearing. And then it, it, um, it's almost imperceptible in a perfect setup, but there is a little bit of uh, play in that bearing. In a angular contact bearing, you must preload it. You must take the play out. And you do that by either a threaded system that bears down on the, on the race. You have two opposing bearings, and you're pushing against them. And they need to be um, preloaded, usually more than people think. So when you're adjusting them, um, they actually have, they feel like they have more friction when they're adjusted properly because uh, all the balls must be engaged all the time. If they're loose, um, it leads to premature uh, 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 failure of or wear of the bearings. So these days, um, mechanics are more used to cartridge bearings because cartridge bearings are everywhere. Uh, you know, 30 years ago, it wasn't the case, but, but nowadays it's the normal thing. So you press them in and you usually tighten down an axle to, to uh, or a spindle with your uh, torque wrench and you're done. Uh, cup and cone or angular contact bearings, you need to set the pressure and then lock it down so that you have, let's say in a bicycle bearing, it's usually between uh, 10, and, 10 and 30 pounds of pressure on that bearing. Now headset bearings are angular contact bearings that we're familiar with. And if you've ever set up a 
headset bearing, you know you kind of add more pressure than you think you would to take the play out. So that's one, one angular contact bearing that I think most people would be familiar with. And when would you want an angular contact versus a radial bearing? Well, what they do is, uh, so it, they distribute, because they're on, uh, the cone is um, preloaded, every ball is in action, or the bearing is supported by every ball. When you have a radial bearing, as I mentioned, there's some play. So as it turns around, you can imagine some balls are are, are uh, holding the weight or uh, resisting the pressure, while some balls are actually floating inside. They're actually coming around and not not working, if you will. Um, usually, it's it's about thirty to forty percent of the balls of any cartridge bearing are in action, whereas in a in a uh, angular contact bearing, all of the balls are always supporting it. So headset bearing, case in point, is a good place for an angular contact bearing. There's there's more um, uh, uh, not friction. I would um, there there's more resistance um, because all of the balls are engaged, and when you turn it, you feel sort of more pressure. But it, it's your steering, and it's uh, it's not holding you back. It's still uh, e easy enough to turn. But you're getting complete support. All of the balls are supporting the headset, and uh, it'll last longer that way. Right, because last I checked, no one, no one was actually going going so far as to make the bold claim that their that their low friction headset bearings would you know save you watts and time over a certain <laughs> distance in a race. Right? We haven't seen that yet. Save, but... save your arms. It's coming now. It's coming. But wait, maybe. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, it's, so it sounds like for, for angular contact, though, basically you would want that in a situation where you are kind of more concerned about maybe load capacity than, than rolling friction. Would that be correct? Yeah, it's yes. Uh, but they also, uh, they have low friction, but it just, when you set them up, it seems like there is going to be more friction with them. And that's one thing. You, that's why people don't usually set them up correctly. They don't usually give them enough preload. But when you're on the bike riding, um, it's going to be an immeasure, you know, very small amount of difference. Uh, the old cup and cone bottom brackets, uh, well, they didn't hold back those bike racers then. I, I you know, I, I'm sort of an advocate of of, of uh, angular contact bearings a lot because I, I like them, but they um, uh, you have to set them up right, and it takes some uh, knowledge on that. I think GM tried to go to angular contact bearings in the automotive industry some years ago from tapered roller bearings and mechanics didn't set them up right. And they went back to, uh, well, tapered roller bearings. And nowadays they use double, double row ball bearings because you just slam them down and, and go. So, um, and they last a long time. They're good. But um, angular contact bearings require more preload than you would think. What about ceramic? Because ceramic bearings are obviously a pretty hot and you know arguably controversial topic, mm -hmm. and you know there's all sorts of wild claims that get tossed about. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, are ceramics always better in some way, or is there also kind of the same amount of variation that you see with steel bearings? And 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 I guess also to clarify, I mean, there is also hybrid ceramic versus what people 
are normally getting when they are thinking they're getting a ceramic fairing versus a full ceramic. So what are we talking about? Right. Here? Well, I think usually when people say ceramic bearings these days, we're going to talk about ceramic hybrids. That is ceramic balls with steel races. Um, there are full ceramic bearings um, and uh, they're, they have their limitations. And I think people have found that out because they can break catastrophically and they're ceramic, so they're kind of like glass. So if you have them set up in your rear hub and they break, it's, uh, it's, it's like all sorts of anarchy back there. Um, <laughs> I, I've experienced it testing it myself. Um, so let's talk about ceramic hybrids. Uh, they, um, uh, the balls are seven times harder than steel. So when you have them set up right, there's no doubt they roll better than a steel ball. A steel ball, you know, is steel, so it can flex a little and compress. So as you uh, load it, and the loads in hubs, especially rear hubs and bottom brackets, are um, all over the place when we're riding because as humans, we're pedaling and we're not perfect. We're not an electric motor spinning that thing. So we're pulling the bearing this way and that, the bike is going this way and that. So as long as that ceramic bearing can roll without being pinched or otherwise uh, uh, stopped, it, it's, it's not gonna flex and it's gonna roll very easily through around, around the race. What the actual measurement, there, there's a lot of claims that are pretty big. I, I doubt some of the claims. Uh, the actual data is, is uh, is, is hard to uh, interpret sometimes, but there is, uh, there is an advantage to a ceramic ball when it's set up right in your, in your, uh, on your bike. Right. Because what you were saying about, I mean, about the, the steel being kind of sort of comparatively flexy. I mean, people love to think of steel ball bearings as being this sort of ultra hard thing. But I mean, there is a fair bit of ductility involved. Like, they're, I mean, they're they're kind of squishy when they're loaded, right? Yeah. I mean, isn't that? I mean, is, isn't that sort of you know what ceramics are really supposed to be good for? I mean, because you said they're they're seven times harder, so when they're loaded, you know, that ceramic ball is less likely to to squish under load, right? Because right? we're talking about pretty high point loads. Oh right? yeah, and high point loads, and like I said before, in cartridge bearings, only some of the balls are engaged as they're rolling around sometimes. So that's a lot of weight in very small places. Point of a ball is is the the uh, contact point is very small. So um, that ball is uh, the ceramic ball is not compressing, if you will, like a pillow or something like that. It's keeping its shape and it's just going to keep rolling on. The the um, challenge of ceramic hybrids has been uh, the steel races that go with the, the ceramic balls. So when they first came out, uh, there was, uh, we, we have better methods of heat treating and cryogenic treating to races nowadays. So they hold up better against the ceramic balls. And there's some different steels that will resist the wear of, of ceramic balls now too. Uh, that, weren't available before. So um, there, there's some uh, 
there's been a lot of headway in the technology of the steel races that go with the ceramic balls to, uh, you know, make a, a cartridge bearing, ceramic hybrid car cartridge bearing that works really well and will last a long time too. Because that's the other thing you want. You don't you don't want to be replacing these things, uh, you know, every every time you go on a ride. Now, ceramic hybrids with bearing steel, they do have to have uh, grease in them. If they don't have any grease, uh, well, most bearings, if they don't have any grease, aren't going to last very long. But ceramic hybrids, especially, uh, that, uh, that, that ball can become like a, <laughs> a, a cutter. So uh, it, it, it can become like a, a carbide uh, cutter or bit and just start shredding a steel race up if if it gets tight and there's no grease in there got it okay so i mean we've gotten into a lot of the nitty gritties on on cartridge bearings as far as all the different materials and you know material types and you know, constructions and that sort of thing So given that there is clearly a huge range of bearing quality and types and you know the way they're put together, um, you know th that automatically means that there is also an awful lot of confusion, I feel like, out there as far as what matters most for different situations. So, you know, say someone is interested in, you know, kind of the most long lasting and durable bearing that they can find, you know, what should they look for and how would they even know what they're getting? Because, you know, if you look at a bearing, you can see it's like a, you know, I don't know, like a 6805 mm -hmm. or, you know, you can say like that two RS. And I mean, there, those numbers kind of just denote basically the, uh, essentially the biggest thing is the size, I guess. Um, and then there are some other indicators that you see on the seal, but I mean, aside from that, you don't really know a whole lot about the bearing that you're looking at, you know, as far as things that we're talking about, like, is there a way to really know, you know, sort of the quality of a bearing that someone might be buying aside from just sort of taking at face value, the, the marketing spiel? Uh, yeah, come see me. No, I, <laughs> sorry, I had to say that. But um, your point um, about when you see a 6805, you don't know. You can't see inside it. You can't see if it's got deep grooves. You can't see what the ball size is. You know, you just hit on an interesting point. A 6805 can have three different ball sizes in it. Now, to me, or for us, and in our testing, you want the largest ball you can get into that into that assembly a bearing, but you can have from a uh, under three millimeter ball size, 2.85 to a four millimeter ball in a 6805. And it's a big difference. It's only, it's one millimeter, but you're talking diameter. So it's mass, it's, it, it actually makes a big difference. So that 6805 with a four millimeter ball with deep grooves, is going to last way longer than the one with the little itty ball, bitty balls in it with a shallow groove. But you can't see that when you look at it because you, you see the seals. You got to take the seals off and you'd have to look inside. Um, so that's a, that's a really good point because there's an industry standard number 6805, but it can mean some different things internally. So how is anyone to know? Like say I needed say I needed to replace a bunch of bearings in my DT Swiss rear hub or something. And 
yeah, I wanted something that was going to last a really long time. You know, let's say I live in the UK and I ride throughout the whole winter and it's, you know, endless slot for months on yeah. end. So, you know, if I, if I want something that's really going to last, you know, how, how do you figure out what you're actually looking for? It's, it's a good question. Well, I mean, this would be my opportunity to sell what we have because uh, I would tell you to, we've spent a lot of years and time on developing uh, XD15 material for, for bearings. And uh, <clears throat> to me, it, it's the answer because it can, it's a stain, super stainless steel. You don't have to lube it. You can run it, ceramic bearings on the races with no lube no grease with dirt or sand in there and they won't wear out. Uh, of course, the flip side is they're expensive, which is the case with a lot of things, but um, it's, it, it takes a lot to make these bearings and that's why they're expensive. Uh, it's a special steel and it doesn't come in tubing. We have to drill it and then machine it and special heat treatment and so forth. But at the end, you end up with this, um, when you put the ceramic balls in there, they're usually ceramic. We're actually looking at hybrids with steel balls now, but uh, uh, when you put the ceramic balls in there um, and you put them in your bike, and if you're in the UK, you can go ride in the rain, you can ride on salt roads or you know salted roads, whatever, and uh, it won't affect, uh, you, you don't have to do any service to those bearings. You can just keep riding on them. Other bearings, almost any other bearing, you have to service it periodically because if you're always gonna get water infiltration no matter how good your sealing system is and eventually the grease is gonna wear out or get pressure washed out or so forth. Once you have water intrusion or minerals in there, um, chromium steel will rust. Even 440C starts to oxidize with certain uh, water and chemicals inside. And you're spraying your bike down with all sorts of stuff. So um, eventually you got to do some service. You got to clean it out. You got to take the seals off. You got to clean the whole thing out, dry it out, and then re-grease it and put it back together. Otherwise, you're going to get uh, the beginning of corrosion, which is micro welding and galling and spalling and all the things that happen to bearings when they start to wear out. So is it possible then, you know, like if, I feel like if someone is looking for a bearing for peak performance, they are obviously going to be looking, you know, thinking about, oh, you know, what has the lowest drag? Mm -hmm. If something's look, if someone's looking for peak durability, you know, they're probably looking for, you know, how well it's sealed and, you know, the sort of grease that's in there and, you know, uh, the groove depth and that kind of thing that you were, that you were talking about. Is it possible to have both though? I mean, or, or are those things always mutually exclusive? Like if someone says like, you know, I want the absolute most adorable bearing, is it possible that that bearing that they're looking for also happens to be the highest performing bearing too? In this case, I think for what we sell at that level, it is. Um, my take on, so when you buy like the best bearing you can buy, ABEC 5, uh, you know, really nice bearing, the best day for that bearing is when you take it out of the box, put it in your bike and you ride it. It's like, okay, maybe after the grease settles. So like second ride or something, that's the best time. And you go do the Hawaiian, the Ironman or something, and that's the lowest friction point. But as you keep riding that bearing, it starts to degenerate and uh, dirt gets in, um, water, 
sport drinks, all the stuff that we spill all over our bikes or whatever we do, it, it gets in there eventually. And then the performance goes down and it's like your chain, you know, the friction starts to uh, be a factor on a dirty chain. And, and the cog said it's the same with the bearings. And then, and then you start to get galling. And the galling is when the ball keeps rolling over the race, you start to get a little pit. It's like a pothole in the road. And, it's, uh, and once you start at a real microscopic level, a little chunk of metal comes out. It's usually from micro welding. It's actually that ball picking up just a little piece of metal. But as it continually rolls over that, that pit, it's like a pothole in the road. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, so that ball is, and then there's many of them. So that ball, when, it, when the bearing starts to wear out and it has this galling, it's like uh, running over a bunch of potholes. And you know, you wouldn't run your Formula One car over a bunch of potholes to be at optimum. So you want that race to be as smooth as possible. So to me, the goal would be to have a bearing that when that, when you get dirt and water and sport drink, whatever in there, you don't get galling. And uh, the only case I've seen that is with this material we're using XD15, because it, it's actually starts, if you get sand in there or dirt, it actually burnishes the race. It actually polishes it. So it's different in that way. So, I mean, I guess just to be clear to, to listeners, I mean, this is not meant to be a, a sort of a, an Enduro-sponsored podcast, and this isn't like an infomercial or, or anything, but uh, I will offer up a little bit of anecdotal evidence and experience that I've had with with this XD15 stuff that Matt is talking about. Uh, years and years ago, uh, this was back in 2012 or 2013, I think, uh, when I was still riding for Bike Radar, um, I did a review of an Enduro XD15 bottom bracket set, and I handed them off to a friend of mine who at the time was regularly commuting daily from a few towns over uh, to, to the shop that, that he was at in, here in Boulder. And uh, I knew he, he was particularly hard on stuff, rode a lot, was really super strong rider. And I handed him this bottom bracket to test out. And just to see, and I think Matt, I think I talked to you before before I did this, just to kind of you know see if theoretically it could it could hold up to this. But I pulled the seals out of this bottom bracket, so I handed this bottom bracket to him. He installed it in, in his bike, and he ran it for an entire winter of commuting in Colorado with no seals in it, you know, completely open to the elements, snow, mud, rain, whatever. And I remember at the end of that period, I checked out his bottom bracket and he, he, was a, he was a mechanic. His name is Brian Hannon here in town. He owns his own bike shop. It's called uh, Boulder Bicycle Works. Um, but at the end of that period, I checked out the bottom bracket and I was just kind of blown away because it still, it legitimately still felt like new. And as far as I'm aware, Brian, I don't know if you're listening to this, I should maybe check in with you again. Um, but as far as I know, he is, you know, last I asked him about this anyway, he is still running that bottom bracket in that same bike and never bothered to put seals back in it or grease it or anything. He basically is just trying to run it into the ground. And as far as I know, he is still using it. It still works fine. So, I mean, that, that, personally, it's quite the testament. Well, I mean, that's, that's been, um, I have a lot of stories like that. It's, that's been my experience too. Of course, you know, there's, uh, we're not the only ones that use it, you know, Campagnolo. So just so we're not just in an enduro endorsement, Campagnolo uses that material in their um, 
uh, the cult bearing, the right? cult bearings. And um, there's some other bearing makers that use it. <clears throat> they sell into the steel industry and into the food making industry. And they use those, they use that material. We're, we're one of the only ones that make a lot of sizes in the bicycle industry, but we're not the only ones using it. So you can, you can look into it, but at XD 15 or XD 16 material, there's two versions of it. Um, and people make knives out of it. They make all sorts of uh, machinery and equipment out of it actually. So, Oh, you can make knives out of it. Oh, oh yeah. I'm going to have to tell my wife. about Oh, it. oh yeah. There's, this, this could get expensive. <laughs> you know those knife guys, man. It's like... <laughs> uh, well... Uh... I want to present to you a few different, just a few different scenarios. And I just kind of want to get a very basic idea as to what sort of thing you would recommend. Mm -hmm. If someone wanted the most ultra durable bottom bracket they could get for their, you know, Shimano external cup threaded bottom bracket, what would you recommend to them? What type of bearing, what should they look for? Uh, well, I would, uh, I'm going to be biased here because, because <laughs> I think the one you have, uh, uh, I think you answered the question earlier, but uh, I would put in XD15 uh, external threaded bottom bracket. Uh, angular contact. Yeah, angular contact. Uh, nowadays, just because of ease of assembly, we've made a 15 degree angular contact bearing that doesn't need as much preload, especially with uh, the plastic preloaders that, you're, you know, the plastic rings that Shimano uses on the crank. It, and they work great. And uh, they're just less fuss with the setup. So that to me is uh, the, uh, you know, you, you would assemble that thing, probably take you 10 minutes to assemble and you, you don't have to look at it again, you know, write it for five years. It'll be great. So let's say someone wanted the, you know, absolute lowest friction bearings they could get in their cartridge bearing hubs. What sort of, what sort of, you know, characteristics should they be looking for in a bearing? Um, for hubs, you're going to go uh, definitely to ceramic again. I, I mean, the best ones to me would be XD15, again, uh, XD15 wheel bearings. Uh, I mean, you can put them in and, again, forget about them. But um, if you wanted to run just oil in them, you could, which that can't be said for um, if you just wanted to run uh, like fluor fluorinated uh, uh, lube in there, let's say. No problem. You could do that. And uh, you can't say that about a lot of other ceramic hybrids that would last after, let's say, a few races. They're, they're not going to last. These, you could revisit them in five years. They'd be fine. Let's say I was on a little bit on a little bit more of a budget. Okay. And let's say XD15 was a little out of my range because it, it is expensive. Mm -hmm. um, so let's say I'm looking for more of a conventional steel bearing. What sort of things should I be looking for in a replacement for either of those scenarios, either like bottom bracket or a hub, for example? Then I would go with uh, like a uh, ABEC five, uh, uh, ABEC five enduro bearing, steel bearing uh, that has LLU seals on the outside and LLB seals on the inside. The LLU seal that we're putting out now. Uh, it has a little bit more contact than the LLB seal inside. 
which still protects, but it's uh, less contact for the inside because you don't need it as much out there. So just the LLU seals face outside where you have dirt, water, and so forth, and the LLB seals are on the inside. And those bearings we designed with the deepest grooves with the biggest balls, so they roll as, as best as possible. And uh, we fill them with good grease and they're made with uh, clean steel. So it's, they hit all the, the hallmarks of a long lasting good bearing. And for a bottom bracket, I mean, if you have the option, uh, would you generally recommend something? Would you generally recommend that someone use an angular contact setup instead of a radial bearing? So the thing that's been working best from our reports in the field and uh, worldwide, because we sell worldwide, uh, you know, the UK with all the water, Indonesia, you name it, really rainy climates is our stainless steel angular contact bearings in the bottom bracket. These are 15 degree angular contacts, so they're really shallow. They don't require a lot of preload. But boy, we've had these, we've visited these bearings, you know, now five, six years later in setups with, you know, uh, riders, racers that really punish them. And they're still like, uh, they feel like they're brand new. Um, cool. Good to hear. Matt, I want to shift gears a little bit. I feel like we've really gotten into the weeds on the weeds on the bearings themselves. Um, but I want to pull back a little bit and and talk about, you know, like you can have, you know, the absolute finest quality bearing in the world, but ultimately as far as bicycle is concerned, or I guess for, for any bearing application, I mean, these bearings do still get put into something. Um, so, you know, given all that, you know, what sort of factors can affect bearing performance when it comes to component design? Because, you know, that is certainly the other half of, of the puzzle here. You know, I feel like you can have a really, really amazing bearing, but if the thing that's getting pushed into is, you know, not made well or not designed well, not machined well, whatever, then, you know, all that performance kind of goes out the window, right? Yeah, it can. If, if, um, so a few years ago when people were making super lightweight hubs, uh, you know, making really thin axles, um, using extremely thin series bearings, small bearings, uh, you could get these rear hubs uh, that were just super light. The problem was, and uh, um, when you, when you uh, ride that hub, let's say up a steep, a really steep incline, there's a tremendous amount of torque uh, going into that hub, um, let's say on a steep grade with a pro rider or or any of us and the axle is so thin that it's flexing back there you can't see it but it's it's flexing and the whole thing is torquing maybe the hub shell is is uh actually flexing to, everything is flexing the bearings are so thin and small they're actually pinching and in certain points and what happens is the balls aren't rolling anymore they're skidding uh, momentarily like as you're as you're pedaling they're skidding around the race but people are doing all this uh, you know thoughts into making something light but then you actually have created kind of like a drag break um, because those bearings are, are locking up sporadically in your pedal motion and they're preventing you from 
going forward faster. So that's an extreme case where uh, fortunately, more recently, people have become more uh, aware of this and they're using larger bearing sizes and rear hubs and more, uh, <clears throat> I think, better designs, little thicker axles and so forth. Um, but yeah, you still have um, hub design can be extremely important and the bearings you choose and where you put those bearings in the hub is extremely important to how efficient that hub is going to be. Same on bottom brackets, you have uh, some problems with frames, uh, carbon frames usually that are not very accurate. They're molded, they're not machined, there's no after machining and they're, they're molded products and sometimes the uh, bottom bracket shell is not round uh, or it's not parallel. Uh, and the bearings, if they're not straight, when you put that crank axle through, they're, they're binding. So you have to have um, bottom bracket shell design that can maybe help that or, um, yeah, you need, you need to actually uh, fix these frames in a way with some bottom bracket design that can align your bearings and keep everything uh, straight and rolling smoothly. Because I guess from sort of a, a fundamental engineering perspective, what we're looking at in, with very few exceptions, I feel like in the bicycle industry, what we have are you know bearings that are supporting some form of rotating shaft essentially mm -hmm. right um, yeah so given that given that kind of simple scenario what are the ideals that you want for that sort of scenario and how are things going wrong at various various places on a bike that can contribute to to a short bearing life yes you have to um sometimes you know you assemble a bike and everything just you know, you slide the bottom bracket, you slide the crank through, through the bottom bracket, and you can tell everything's in alignment because, boy, that thing just slid through and, you know, no problem at all. Sometimes you might slide the bottom bracket axle in a mechanic and it's like you're really working to find the other side. And then when you get it there, you're almost getting the uh, rubber mallet out to pound it through. That's not a good sign because that means that the two bearings are not parallel to, to each other. So I would get in there and and take a look at that see what's going on you know it could be a few things it could be the bottom bracket is not correct it could be the the shell of the bike is not uh, square um or it could be an outer round hole that's pressing down you know there, there's a lot of things um you could possibly look at uh fortunately these days we have more solutions than we did a few years ago we just put everything together a few years ago and wrote it and it creaked and you swore at it because it creaked and you know uh, there's more solutions nowadays fortunately sorry the same can be said with a rear hub when you're assembling that hub and a lot of rear hubs are tricky to assemble with the bearings you you know it's um you have there's a nuance to setting the bearings in a lot of rear hubs and there's some good videos from certain hub makers that go into it so you'll do it correctly but uh, uh, front hubs are pretty straight ahead. You you know press the bearings in and so forth. But in a rear hub, you've got four or five bearings at least usually, and uh, you know getting all those straight and spaced correctly and set up correctly is is a bit challenging sometimes. You have to know what you're doing, have the right tools. 
Because I guess in theory, you know, again, with this whole rotating shaft scenario that I, that I was talking about, I mean, essentially what you want ideally is for, for everything to be perfectly concentric, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you, you theoretically want those, if it's two bearings, for example, then you theoretically want those bearings to be set pretty far apart yeah. right, to, to kind of minimize the effects of, of flex, I guess, on, onto that bearing. Um, and then um, what about the bearing itself? I mean, let, let's say you design a component, you, you're intentionally, you're very mindful to, you know, set the bearings far apart and you try to get your tolerances right and whatever. Mm -hmm. What about the bearing size itself? I mean, because you were talking earlier about, you know, kind of like the ball bearing diameter inside of the cartridge. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it always better to have a bigger one in terms of in terms of load and durability? I mean, how do you kind of balance all that with with you know rolling friction and weight and that sort of thing? Well, given any size, there's obviously a limit to what ball you can put inside of it. So, a six eight zero six bearing, which is the BB thirty bearing, it's uh, seven millimeters wide, and uh, you know you're obviously not going to get and get uh, every any ball you want inside of it, but um, in our experience, larger balls last longer to a certain point. The race has to be uh, thick enough to support that ball, too. So if the race gets down um, under a millimeter where the ball rolls to the edge, it's getting a little thin. And um, then you start to run into other problems like uh, the bearing wants to misshape or potato chip or... Uh, you have problems in heat treating too when it gets that thin, but uh, uh, yeah, overall, what we found is you want, uh, especially for bottom bracket bearings, like you mentioned, you want the largest ball possible in there for axial loads and you want the deepest groove because you can imagine the ball in a bottom bracket, you're when you're, you're pedaling motion and some people more than others are literally ripping that thing apart when they're pedaling out of the saddle, um, you're pulling it this way and that. So the ball is going like this. So you can imagine a little teeny small ball in a shallow groove. It could actually practically rip it out of that groove. But if you have a larger ball in a deeper groove, it's being supported and keeping it, keeping things going straight ahead rather than, um, uh, spalling the ball or cutting it on the edge of, of the race as it goes forward. So speaking of bottom brackets, I guess I want to get into one specific subject. Press fit for cartridge bearings is is essentially the norm in industrial settings. I mean, it's just how things are done. Um, but it's become kind of a deal breaker in the bicycle world. I mean, I know, you know, various mechanical engineers that I've spoken to, you know, like, you know, Raul Lusher in, in, in Australia. I mean, when he builds his own bikes, I mean, he he prefers it for himself um, because, again, at least in theory, press fit is, is a better way to go. Um, but I mean, again, it, it's it's become kind of like this mechanical pariah in in the bicycle industry. I mean, what, what's what's gone wrong here? Why is it not working from your perspective as a as a as a bearing person? I mean, what what are what companies have been doing all this time that they haven't been doing to make these things work right? Well, you know, when they started, when we started uh, with PF thirty, BB thirty, some of those um, standards. Uh, 
the bearings are set into the bottom bracket shell at a specific uh, 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 spacing apart, but they're inside the shell. And then you have different crank lengths. And sometimes you'd have to put adapters on to, um, to assemble this bike because the spindle would be longer than the shell, quite a bit longer in some cases. And when you have adapters and the bearings are inside here, and some of the designs were very close together, and the cranks are out here, you have these long levers just, uh, you know, honking on those bearings from a long ways away, and they wore them out, or you, you would get a lot of noise creaking and so forth. So, I mean, we're better now because most designs take into account and try to put the bearings, I think, at the crank arms, although I see other cases these days too. But the bearings should be as close to the crank arm as possible, number one because that will eliminate so many problems uh, like noise or premature wear. Um, but yeah, you're, I think you're probably alluding to assembling these bikes with press fit bottom brackets. And when things aren't square, it gets back to that again, and you're using plastic cups. Number one, plastic cups are not ideal for backing up bearings. They like, you know, in most industries, it's either steel, really. Aluminum is, uh, you know, unique kind of the bicycle, very common and unique to the bicycle industry as a backup material. Thin aluminum, I should say, because these cups are pretty thin. So the, the bearings aren't backed up very well. So you have to do what you can to um, make sure that everything is straight, aligned, um, because if they're not, they're going to, you're going to get noise and they're going to wear out quickly, uh, which we see a lot of. Right. Because I feel like one of the things that you and I had talked about, this was ages ago now, was how, you know, there was a long time where there was a push toward, you know, bigger bottom bracket spindles, you know, 30 millimeters better than 24 millimeters, mm -hmm. stiffer, or lighter, or so on and so forth. Uh, but one one factor in that equation that never really got discussed was the fact that you know the these associated bearings that these that these spindles will that these spindles were rotating on they were bigger in diameter bigger OD bigger ID mm -hmm. um, and you know you heard all this stuff about the the shaft itself being stiffer yeah. but those bearings themselves I think you had told me are actually I mean bearing bearing stiffness itself in that cartridge, uh, the way you, the way you explained it to me back mm -hmm. then was that the stiffness of the bearing actually goes down mm -hmm. with increasing diameter. Is that right? Uh, well, you're talking about a, a larger spindle with a thinner bearing on the outside. Yeah. Well, then you have thinner races that can flex more and, uh, smaller balls. And, you know, the worst case scenario we saw, which was a smaller diameter, but just no clearance for the bearing in there was ISIS. And we all remember how, how great that was. Um, Didn't go no. well. <laughs> God, <laughs> I, I can hardly say it. But um, those bearings were so thin, there was no room to get a bigger bearing in there. So you try a, we tried all these tricks, needle bearings, max bearings, double row bearings. But the bottom line was you couldn't get bigger balls in there. And yeah, when you go even to a larger diameter, you know, spindle with a small shell, uh, you have, when you get down to two millimeter balls for a bottom bracket, they're just not ideal. Let's say two or, you know, 
two or three millimeter balls are not ideal in a bottom bracket. You really want to see something closer to four millimeters that lasts longer. So, you know, the 2437 bearings that work in Shimano or, um, <clears throat> or 6806, those are, those are reasonably sized bearings, but, um, you're challenged when you get smaller than that, let's just say. So it, and it's the same in hubs when you're going for lightweight and you put in, uh, you know, we'll talk about series for a second of bearings. So common series in the bicycle business is 6,900, 6,902, 6,901. Uh, so that is a series of bearings. It's pretty, um, uh, robust series. When you go down to 6,800, it's called the extra thin series. Uh, it's, uh, the races are thinner, the bearings are smaller, they they flex more, they they pinch more. You know, depending on the design, they may not last as long. And then people go down to the 6700, which is extra ultra thin series. And those bearings, they were meant for instruments. They were not meant for um, to be in a rear hub. Uh, you know, and they're they're just not gonna oh, last. But Matt, they're light. Yeah. They're light. Oh, yeah, they're super light. <laughs> um, all right, Matt, I want to kind of wrap this mm -hmm. up with a little discussion on bearing service and maintenance, because I feel like all of this so far has been talking about kind of new bearings or replacing things that are you know, completely shot. Um, but for, for people who like to take care of their own bikes, who'd like to kind of, you know, stay on top of the maintenance and make sure that things are operating properly. Um, you know, th there's sort of this general assumption out in the world, and it certainly was for me way back in my, you know, really early shop days and stuff that, that cartridge bearings are sort of this magical kind of set and forget maintenance free items. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, however, you know, you and I both know that that's not entirely true. So, you know, disregarding any discussion about, you know, replacing the bearing itself or upgrades, you know, what should people be doing to take care of what they already have? Yeah. Now people have a lot of time these days to <laughs> do some of those things, but, uh, except for the parents with little kids that are homeschooling. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I'm past that. now. <laughs> You'll get there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not that hard to service your bearings. Actually, you do need to remove them from the hub or from the bottom bracket. Um, and that can be a little tricky sometimes because you're going to want to get to both sides of the bearing. Removing one seal and uh, squirting some lube in there. Well, you can do that, um, you know, out on the trail or something if you need to. But if you're really going to service it, first you got to remove the bearings and you're going to have to do it with the proper tools. So find the proper tools, whether it's from us or anybody else. So you get the bearing out and um, it's very easy to remove the seals. So here's my handy dandy tool. It's just a little teeny Swiss army knife and you can use other things, but you're going to take this and just pry down on the seal at the center and pop it out. There's videos on this, so you can look at the videos, but you're going to remove the seal very carefully. You just pry it out from the center. Uh, it's like you're taking a tire off a rim and uh, you want to do it to both sides. And then um, you're going to, clean that thing out with uh, um, some kind of uh, hopefully environmentally friendly solvent. And uh, it's hard to get all the dirt and grease out of a bearing. So whatever you're doing, uh, you, you're going to have to um, probably do a little more than you thought to get all of the black 
dirt and grit out of there and old grease. And then you have to let it dry. Um, you know, it's not recommended to really uh, um, hit bearings with a compressor. I, I have to admit, I, I'm impatient, so I do. But just make sure you're not spinning it when you do it. That's the main thing. But you can you can blow it out with compressed air. And then uh, put a really high-quality grease back in. There's many out on the market. I recommend thicker, stickier greases, even if you're... Um, even if you're going for low friction, because almost any grease uh, after one ride uh, distributes itself and uh, uh, will become free spinning again. But uh, I like uh, extra high pressure or sticky greases uh, just, just because we're all washing our bikes and stuff gets in there and the grease is really important. Um, and then you press the seals back on and reassemble it. And, uh, you know, it's really like it's as rewarding as cleaning your chain and your cassette and having a nice running drivetrain, which I don't know about the rest of you, but I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as tools go, I mean, what sort of a basic setup that, can, that someone could get away with? I mean, I know there are all sorts of you know, really elaborate tool mm -hmm. sets out there. I mean, Dave Rome, if you're listening to this, I know you've got like nine or 10 different bearing sets out there, bearing tool sets in your, in your drawer. Um, but for someone who you know, is on a little bit more of a practical budget and mm -hmm. isn't doing this all that often, what, what, should they, what, what should they maybe be interested in looking into to kind of take care of their bearings properly? So the first thing you need is usually to pull the bearings out, you're going to need some kind of blind hole puller set. And there's various ones out there now. They uh, have expanding collets and uh, you use a slide hammer and you have to use it gingerly to pull the bearing out. Um, sometimes you need more force depending on the press fit or if, it, or if the bearing was glued in. But you're gonna have to pull it out of the hub. Uh, you know, so a blind, it's called a blind hole or a, uh, with expanding collets, blind hole puller set. So you'll need that or some kind of uh, uh, bearing removal um, uh, tools. And a hammer and a screwdriver. Yeah, don't use a hammer and a screwdriver, please. <laughs> <laughs> One of, uh, hammer and chisel, hammer and chisel. Yeah, right? I, I get those bearings back. Um, I, need the, I need this bearing replaced for warranty, but uh, you can see the screwdriver marks on it. So. <laughs> don't don't try it no it's uh but yeah uh sometimes it's tricky to get bearings out the main thing to be conscientious of when you're doing it is to pull straight because especially on aluminum hubs and so forth they're not in there that tight but you do need to have everything has to be aligned when you pull it out um, so um you do it in a straight line so that's that's a major thing and then when you're pressing it back in there's various presses. You can even use, uh, you know, if you're very careful, you can do the Home Depot thing. I, I, I don't really, you know, threaded rod and some washers and bolts. I've seen it. I've seen everything by now. But um, try and avoid hammers um, because you just get things cockeyed and you're going to make it worse. And then you're going to ruin your uh, beautiful hub or something because you're going to miss and hit the flange. And, you know, that's or, or worse, you just crunch the aluminum spacer that you have to call the place and pay 50 bucks for or something. So tools are worth it in general to use some better ones, but you need a hub press and a blind hole puller. 
Okay. And that, that should more or less do it. Cool. Well, Matt, I'm not really sure that we've left a whole lot else on the table here as far as bearing discussion goes. I mean, we went we went pretty deep into the weeds here. We did. We covered some ground, actually. Good questions. Uh, I mean, we could keep going, but, you know, we don't want to put everybody to sleep. <laughs> I was going to say, and if, any, if anyone's still here at this point, I'm going to consider that a yeah. win. So, Matt, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. I appreciate it as always. Uh, and hopefully we will, well, I'd love to have you on the show again. And yeah, maybe we can, anytime. Maybe we'll have a little little more of a lighthearted discussion. We'll see We'll see how this goes. Maybe not go quite as deep into the Okay. Ways, but we can save that. All right. That sounds great. Great to see you, James. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Likewise. All right. Take care. Well, that will wrap up our special deep dive into the world of bearings. If you enjoyed the show this week, please leave us a rating or comment on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. And perhaps more importantly, tell your friends about Nerd Alerts so that we can reach more people and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss another episode. And if you've got a question or comment you'd like us to address, you can do that over on the episode page on cyclingtips.com and we'll do our best to find some answers for you. See you all in another two weeks. Bye.